You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around looking at What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so sick? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the Call me Mr. Boy's best friend. This is my boy. I have no style. You can park all day, little dog. No one! Everyone! Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Well, it's been three weeks without my having a car. I walked three miles to a friend's house last night because that's how desperate I am to not be in my apartment. So let's get into this. No movie reviews this week because no car. But since I have been getting asked some questions in the last few weeks about the looming IATSE strike, which as I'm recording this is going to start the day after this episode releases, I figured I'd fill in all you non-industry folk. For the first time in its 128-year history, IATSE, a.k.a. the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees, is going on strike. This will shut down production on all major film and television productions until an agreement can be met. As you may recall from several episodes of this podcast, this will hardly be the first time a union in Hollywood has staged walkouts and work halts and strikes due to unfair working conditions within the industry. The most recent one you may or may not remember was the writer's strike of 2007 and 2008, which lasted 14 weeks from November 2007 to February 2008. That strike occurred over compensation when it came to DVD residuals, the beginning of streaming, and how they would be compensated fairly. So what is the cause of this upcoming strike? Well, in short, and to majorly oversimplify, a lot of crew members are fed up with how a majority of film and television sets are being run and the safety issues that occur as a result. These include, but are not limited to, having work days longer than 12 hours with few real breaks, lack of proper facilities, rates below $18 an hour for skilled labor, and miserable working conditions to boot. They are also asking for equal pay for productions that are streamed online and not released theatrically or on television, which has been a rising issue for years because of the advent and higher prevalence of streaming. Crews that work on streaming shows or films are paid a discounted rate, even though it's the exact same job. IATSE is also asking on behalf of their members for something many of you outside of the industry may take for granted, a goddamn weekend. <laughs> Some studios and producers implement something called a Friday, which is a workday that begins on a Friday in the late morning, early afternoon that often extends into the wee hours of Saturday. This happens due to the previous workdays running over time, so each day they've started a little bit later. So when you finally get off work at 2 or 3 a.m. or later, you're likely sleeping for the majority of a Saturday and not doing the things most other people get to do at the weekend. So you basically have Sunday to do everything, but surprise, you've got to be in bed early because your Monday call is 5 a.m. 
Sleep deprivation is a very real issue for crew members and has led to deaths both on and off sets as a result. So because you've worked a 60 to 80 plus hour week with an 8 to 10 hour turnaround if you're lucky, which does not count your commute, and LA is a hellhole of shitty traffic, you're not left with a lot of time to do anything but work and sleep. One of the things that IATSE is trying to bargain for in this regard is a 54-hour turnaround on weekends and a 10-hour guaranteed turnaround between wrapping on one day and call on the next so crew members can experience a reasonable amount of downtime and not just live and breathe work. There are several other things as well that IATSE is trying to get for crews, like better benefits and recognition for those who work in animation, but these are the big ones. Working in entertainment is historically an all-encompassing job, and it's gotten to the point where that lifestyle is no longer sustainable for most crew members. IATSE has been working tirelessly since May with studios and the AMPTP, aka the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, to try and procure better conditions for their 60,000 members, but so far no agreement has been met. So, strike. The first in its 128-year history, which was approved by 98% of those who voted. The turnout for this historic vote? Nearly 90%. That number in itself should speak loud and clear to the studios and producers, but it is falling on deaf ears. I and everyone I know have their own nightmare stories dealing with overtime and unsafe conditions. Everyone who's ever worked on a set does. And without going details on mine, one time I worked on a set that went into triple overtime and I was driving a van, which you should not be doing when you've been awake for over 24 hours. If you want a more detailed look into what is happening behind the scenes on some of your favorite television and films, I implore you to check out at IA underscore stories on Instagram. They have been collecting stories from all over the industry and posting them anonymously to show how deeply rooted these problems are. Update. While I was editing this episode, my union friends sent me announcements that the strike has been averted and a tentative agreement has been met with all of the concerns being addressed. So go IATSE. No strike at this time, but I'll leave all this prior stuff in just because y'all were asking about it. So now on to happier things? Well, other things at least. This week, we continue our journey through some of the most famous slashers ever to wipe the silver screen with blood. While its iconic villain wouldn't make an appearance in its first installment until the very end, he more than made up with it in the 10 films and one remake that followed. This week, we're covering the history of Jason Voorhees and the Friday the 13th franchise. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. Steve should never have opened this place again. There's been too much trouble here. Did you know that a young boy drowned the year before those two others were killed? The counselors weren't paying any attention. They were making love while that young boy drowned. His name was Jason. I was working the day that it happened, preparing meals here. I was the cook. After the first Halloween shot, scores of audience members to the theaters, producers all over Tinseltown and, well, the world, were inspired to create their own stabby-stabby murder person. One such individual was Sean S. Cunningham. 
Sean S. Cunningham worked in theater before he got his start in film working in documentaries, namely a sexy film called Together, before working as a producer for Modern Horror Master and eventual creator of Freddy Krueger, Wes Craven, on his film The Last House on the Left in 1972. The film had made both Craven and Cunningham quite a bit of cash, but it also made them the cheap horror gory boys in Hollywood, a designation Cunningham rebuffed. He was happy to work with Wes, and the two remained on good terms afterwards, but Sean's passion lied with documentary filmmaking. For the next several years, Cunningham worked pretty consistently as a filmmaker, even making a couple of sports comedy films, one of which was called Here Come the Tigers, which was basically a poor man's Bad News Bears. He had been told audiences wanted lots of warm, fuzzy family movies, which as far as I can tell had never been the case, and Cunningham soon realized that films like this would not support his wife and two young children. But one thing he didn't want to do was go back to horror. Like I mentioned last week, Halloween had changed the game when it came to independent cinema. It was quite rare for a film from the indie world to have any kind of mainstream success. Cunningham had enjoyed the original Halloween and set out to make his own version in his Connecticut garage. He believed a foray into the horror genre would lead to work in other film genres. He just needed to get his foot through that pesky Hollywood door. I would suggest not living in Connecticut at a time when pretty much everything started in Los Angeles, but that's just me. Cunningham even went to one of the producers of Halloween, Erwin Yablin, to finance his new horror film. Yablin didn't want to do another horror film right away and turned him down. Financing would eventually come from an ad he'd place in the newspaper. Cunningham placed an advertisement in Variety, an entertainment train paper, using the Friday the 13th title he had recently come up with, stating that the film would be released two months later. The script wasn't even finished at this point. Cunningham had been concerned that another company would already have rights to the name, and in a pretty much pre-internet world, thought this would be the easiest way to find out immediately if somebody had it. He also hoped that the ad would attract some interested financiers. He commissioned a New York advertising agency to develop the his concept of the Friday the 13th logo, which consisted of big block letters bursting through a pane of glass. The ad, as it turns out, would secure him the funding he needed to actually make the film. Cunningham hired Victor Miller, whom had previously written Here Come the Tigers under a pseudonym for Cunningham, and the two got to brainstorming about a locale that would find a bunch of teenagers partying and doing the dirty, and therefore easy to pick off by a crazed murderer. Miller, remembering how terrified he used to be when he went off to summer camp, pitched the locale as their setting before it opened, of course, to avoid having to hire kiddos. Cunningham liked the idea, and Miller got to writing the script for Long Night at Camp Blood. The film would be renamed Friday the 13th around the third or fourth draft. Cunningham also realized he had to do more than copy-paste the new scare techniques and camera trickery, which John Carpenter had used in Halloween. So he drew upon ideas from one of his early dream projects, a film version of Hansel and Gretel, as well as the disturbing graphic imagery of the grim fairy tales. Could these things be updated for the youthful, shock-horror-starved audiences of 1980? And how could they pull off the creative and graphic murder scenes written into Victor Miller's script, which were based on his own lifelong anxieties, with a shoestring budget? He got his answer when a 26-year-old makeup effects artist named Tom Savini entered the project. He had previously worked on films like Dawn of the Dead and considered himself the king of gore. 
The energetic young man drove up from Pennsylvania to Connecticut to meet with Cunningham and Miller about the film. During the meeting, he asked questions like, quote, Do you want a real face with a fake axe in it or a fake face with a real axe in it? So, yeah, he got the job. He hired Tazo Stavrakis, his longtime friend, as his apprentice, and the two set to work to figure out how to create realistic carnage. The two would also serve as the stand-ins for many of the murders, including the decapitation scene. Make sure to check out Mrs. Voorhees' hairy knuckles in her final moments. Speaking of Miller's script, the characters are by and large pretty generic. In fact, this became one of the contributions that the Friday the 13th films would contribute to the American slasher film recipe book. If you've seen Cabin in the Woods, a film that satirizes certain horror film tropes, it plays on this generic portrayal of characters. For example, first you've got the good girl, aka the final girl, then the jock, the slut, the slacker, and the love interest for the good girl. It also has the old man at the last stop warning those naive teens of their impending doom. By the end of the film, all but the good girl would be dead. In this film, that would be Alice, who would be played by relative newcomer Adrian King. Other members of the cast included relative newcomer Kevin Bacon, Bing Crosby's son Harry, and a slew of classically trained actors who basically took the job on for the money and the knowledge that nobody was ever gonna see this film. Shooting for Friday the 13th commenced on September 4th, 1979, with a budget of $600,000, twice what it had taken to make the first Halloween film. The film was shot on location in rural Blairstown and Hope, New Jersey, over a period of seven weeks, during which time several of the crew actually stayed in the cabins. The camp was mostly real, a working Boy Scouts camp that they were allowed to shoot in after providing a donation to the Boy Scouts, and were allowed to film once the children had cleared out. In fact, it's still a working camp to this day. It's called Camp No B Bosco, or as the cast and crew called it, not a very good Boy Scout camp. The first two weeks were the daytime scenes, which the cast and crew later remembered as being very camp-esque with a small crew and cast that were basically all trapped together in this rural town. These lighthearted camp memories were quickly exchanged for long nights in dank cabins battered by howling winds surrounded by vast and creepy woods. It rained a lot, too, as it was September-October and not July like the film takes place. All of this whilst having to battle the ever-threatening presence of the impending dawn. By the end of production, Friday the 13th had gone through highs and lows, surviving a lack of cash flow from its financiers, one of whom kept changing their minds and even shut down the film briefly, a barely there script, constant practical jokes by the special effects team, whom had buckets of blood and dummies of the actors at their disposal, accidentally blinding Bing Crosby's son in one eye for six months with a chemical in the fake blood, weeks of intense all-night shoots, that left cast and crew exhausted, but there was one final crucial scene left to complete. One that would spawn a franchise and only exists because the main financier made them do it. This might be a good time to tell those of you whom have never seen Friday the 13th just what exactly that film is about. 22 years after a young boy drowned in the lake, and 21 years after two counselors were violently murdered, Camp Crystal Lake, or Camp Blood as it's referred to by the locals, is getting ready to reopen for the first time since the murders. The film follows a myriad of camp counselors getting ready to welcome the new campers until night falls and one by one they are picked off by an unseen assailant. 
This assailant is revealed to be none other than Mrs. Voorhees, the mother of the young boy whom died in the lake all those years ago. She has returned to exact her vengeance on the counselors whom she blames for her son's death. Alice, our final girl, decapitates the deranged Mrs. Voorhees. Exhausted, Alice boards a canoe, as one does after lopping off someone's head. Suddenly, Jason's decomposing corpse meant to be a chair jump a la the end of Carrie, rises from the water and attacks her, at which point she awakens in a hospital screaming, surrounded by a police sergeant and medical staff who are tending to her. When Alice asks about Jason, the sergeant said there was no sign of any boy. She says, then he's still there. They didn't know it at the time, but in adding in the appearance of Jason, the filmmakers had given birth to a cinematic icon. In post, Harry Manfredi was brought on board to compose the music and decided that music could only play when the killer was present in the scene. He's also the guy who comes up with the k k k k ah 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 theme. That's all Harry Manfredi. He would go on to compose the music in all but one of the films. When the film was completed, a bidding war over distribution rights to the film ensued in 1980 between Paramount Pictures, Warner Brothers, and United Artists. Paramount executive Frank Mancuso Sr. recalled, quote, The minute we saw Friday the 13th, we knew we had a hit. At the time, Paramount was actively seeking out independently produced films to add to their slate of releases. Doing this would change the way films were released and promoted, though the studios didn't realize this at the time. Paramount ultimately purchased domestic distribution rights for Friday the 13th for $1.5 million, with Warner Brothers getting the rights to the international distribution. This became the first independent slasher picture to be acquired by a major film studio. Based on the success of recently released horror films and the low budget of the film, the studio deemed it a low-risk release in terms of profitability. Paramount spent approximately $500,000 in advertising for the film, and then an additional five hundred thousand when it began performing well at the box office. Critically, Friday the 13th was written off as silly, cheap, and a pale imitation of Halloween, but audiences didn't seem to care. The film opened theatrically on May 9th, 1980 across the United States, ultimately earning $39.7 million domestically. Friday the 13th was also released internationally, which was unusual for an independent film at the time, especially one that didn't have any recognizable actors, aside from Betsy Palmer, who played Mrs. Voorhees, whom only took the job because she needed a new car, and again, thought no one would ever see this film. Not counting international markets or the crossover film Freddy vs. Jason, the original Friday the 13th would be the highest grossing film of the franchise until the remake in 2009. By the end of 1980, Friday the 13th not only ranked as the top grossing horror film of the year, but it had broken all of the rules of how a Hollywood film was supposed to be made. It was done completely without the help of a studio until distribution. 
Friday the 13th bridged the gap between the wholly independent, regionally distributed B-movie market and the realm of the major studio, A-Picture, a hierarchy that had largely been in place since the 1920s with the genesis of the studio system. Friday the 13th would also be in the front row of a seismic shift in exploitation movie making. If the public wanted to be scared, the major studios were more than happy to oblige. So, it was time to do a sequel. But with the second film, Paramount wanted it to be made faster, cheaper, and gorier than the last. According to Paramount Pictures chairman and CEO Frank Mancuso Sr., quote, We wanted it to be an event where teenagers would flock to the theaters on that Friday night to see the latest episode. Ideas were floated around for what the next installment could be since they had decapitated the murderer in the previous film. Initial ideas involved the Friday the 13th title becoming used for a series of unrelated films released once a year and each would be a separate scary movie of its own right. Kind of like what Halloween 3 tried to be, which famously didn't work, but that film was released in 1982 so the studios didn't know that that wouldn't work at this point. Several people, including one of the producers on the original film, insisted that the the sequel must be about Jason Voorhees, Pamela's son, as the killer, even though his appearance at the end of the original film was meant as a joke, something just to scare the audiences. Steve Miner, who was an associate producer on the first film, liked this idea, and he ultimately directed the first two sequels after Cunningham opted not to return to the franchise. Friday the 13th was never a passion project for him, merely a means to an end, a calling card to open the door in Hollywood. He was out of the picture for now. Making the sequel to a film that had been so beloved by audiences was a daunting task for Miner, whom got little more than encouragement from former collaborator Cunningham. Undaunted, Miner chose the easy path oft made by the directors of sequels. Create a follow-up that's familiar but technically different, a film that's a bit more polished and put together with a lot more scares. To recapture the appeal of the original film and likely surround himself with familiar and reassuring support, Miner assembled a team that included many of the same crew members who had worked on the original Friday the 13th, with most of them receiving promotions. By the end of September 1980, just a few months after the release of the original film, Miner and company would already be setting up camp in Kent, Connecticut, preparing for the eight-week shoot. Along with a cast of fresh blood for the new murderous Voorhees, the team set out to try and top the original Friday the 13th. The makeup effects this time around were handled by Carl Fullerton. Fullerton designed the look of the adult Jason Voorhees, they opted not to make him a child, and went with long red hair and a beard while following the facial deformities established in the original film. This look changed often, and with each film, Jason would get a little more ragged and messed up than the last. Compared to other horror franchises, it took a while for Jason to achieve what most people would consider his iconic look. In this film, for example, his face is covered in a burlap sack, not a hockey mask. A notable member of the Friday the 13th crew was Frank Mancuso Jr., the son of the head of Paramount, whom came to set dress to the nines and would soon be made an associate producer on the film, which as we know is a glorified title more often than not. Junior would go on to be a producer for much of the Friday the 13th franchise. Mancuso Sr. denies any utilization of nepotism, of course. You tell me, after I tell you about all these sequels he made in this franchise, whether or not nepotism played a part, because I certainly have an opinion and it ain't in line with Sr.'s. 
Part two starts only a few months after the events of the first film, with Alice attempting to move on from her traumatic experience. In her apartment, Alice opens a refrigerator and finds the severed head of Pamela Voorhees and is quickly murdered with an ice pick to her temple by an unknown assailant. Five years after that, some idiot is trying to open up a school for camp counselors, whatever the hell that is, across the way from the now-condemned Camp Crystal Lake. Jason in this film is considered an urban legend. He survived his drowning and is now living in the woods near Crystal Lake. Enraged at his mother's death, he will kill anyone he comes across in his woods. Mysterious murders begin to take place, and it is eventually revealed that it is none other than Jason Voorhees, driven mad by watching his mother get decapitated. The campers manage to evade Jason, though his fate is left ambiguous. The film was a financial hit, though it made notably less than its predecessor, making only $21.7 million domestically. The film was considered a success by the studio, despite this and the atrocious reviews the film received, but they were scratching their heads at what had caused the drop in profits. Despite issues with ratings and a less successful sophomore outing, Friday the 13th Part 3 was greenlit. Now to this point, the Friday the 13th films were basically murder, murder, stabby murder with very little plot. And the third film set out to change that. They didn't really, while also being in 3D, a huge undertaking for everyone involved. In fact, custom lenses were eventually constructed to accommodate the film's specific 3D requirements. Part 3 was also the first in the franchise to be shot on the West Coast, this time in Saugus, California. No one had been like super stoked on the look of Jason in the second film and retconned a lot of it in the third, despite the fact that it technically takes place the day after the events in the second film. With a new makeup team on board, this crew was about to make history. Part three is notable for the introduction of what most people associate with the Friday the 13th franchise, the hockey mask, which was modeled after a 1950 era's Red Wing mask. From this film forward, Jason Voorhees and his hockey mask would become the enduring image of the franchise. This decision was made during a lighting check on set. The film's 3D effects supervisor Martin Sadoff was a hockey fan and supplied a Red Wings goalie mask to Miner. Miner loved it, but during test shots found it too small when factoring in the prosthetics. Using a technique called vacuform, Makeup effects director Doug White enlarged the mask and created a new mold to work with. After he finished the molds, art director Terry Ballard placed new red triangles on the mask to give it a unique appearance. Holes were also punched into the mask and the markings were altered, making it slightly different from the original mask, probably so they wouldn't get sued. Two prosthetic face masks were created for Richard Brooker, whom played Jason in Part 3, to wear underneath the hockey mask. One was composed of about 11 different pieces and took about six hours to apply to Brooker's face. This was used for scenes where the hockey mask was removed to show Jason's deformed noggin. In scenes where the hockey mask is over the face, a head mask was created. This one piece could slip over Brooker's head but left his face unencumbered and then he put the mask over it. Petru Popescu's final draft of the Friday the 13th Part 3 script again replicated the basics of the first two films while injecting some humor, more bodies, and developing a beefed-up backstory for Jason, including a barely-there subplot that suggested a previously unexplored sexual aspect of the character. Like the first two films, the third film kicked off with the daytime shooting, and the immense technical requirements of the 3D nonsense commanded every second of the filmmaker's attention, meaning a lot of other things fell by the wayside. This included the actors, 
actors whom felt left adrift during filming, victims themselves of the technology that was supposed to beef up the franchise. Part 3 would quickly go over schedule and over budget. The film also sees Jason move away briefly from the summer camp and instead into a nearby town on the lakefront where he once again wreaks his vengeance on a new crop of victims. The film also features a 20-minute chase scene that would shift Jason from a brutal animalistic killer to a cold, calculating, and methodical one. Part 3 is unique for a few different reasons. It is the only installment to never once utter the name Jason. It also had three separate endings planned. The first was the original, which was not the one in the film, and saw Chris, the final girl, decapitated by a machete-wielding Jason in a dream sequence. This ending is believed to be lost, as it has never been released in any capacity. The second is the ending of the theatrical film, which sees Jason lying face down in a barn, the lake finally peaceful. A third ending was scripted but never filmed, though it can be read in the 1982 novelization, which is of course out of print and hella spendy to acquire. The film was also the first to be heavily merchandised, and Part 3 was the first to have its soundtrack made available to purchase. Friday the 13th Part 3 opened on August 13th, 1982, and the film had its highest grossing opening weekend of the franchise. Of the three, it ranked second only to the first film in cash. And of course, critics hated it, but they aren't the ones buying the majority of theater tickets, are they? Luckily for 80s filmmakers, 3D didn't catch on the way the studios wanted and wouldn't see another resurgence until the mid to late noughties. Horror movies had lived hard and fast up until this point, and the gimmick was wearing thin by 1983-1984. Every producer in town was mass-producing films of all levels of quality that featured a killer racking up a high body count of teenagers. By 1983, 60% of all motion pictures, not just horror films, produced in the United States were somehow related to the slasher film. This is why when I did the brief history of film series at the beginning of this podcast, I pretty much went from like The Godfather, and taxi driver type films straight to Jurassic Park which released over 20 years later. The 80s were all about audience service, stabby stabby slashy blood, horror, and by and large that meant a lot of murdering and not a lot of anything else. But the slasher genre was slowly evolving as more senior filmmakers began churning out their own, more polished version of the slasher film, and this made films like Friday the 13th kind of obsolete. Part of the fun was how kind of crappy they are. This was the danger facing 1984's Friday the 13th, the final chapter. Ha. Despite the success of the franchise, the bad reviews were weighing on Paramount and the producers, whose professional reputations were taking quite the hit. It was time for Jason to go out before he murdered everyone's careers. The final chapter is the first in the series to not only have two survivors instead of one, but one of them is also a child. The filmmakers believed that this had never been done in a slasher film before. They also worked to create characters that the audiences didn't want to see get killed. It was also the first to focus on a family instead of just a group of teenagers. Casting a group of known or at least semi-recognizable faces from film, TV, and music, among them an Australian pop star, an up-and-coming child star, and an ex-teen heart heartthrob didn't hurt either. Once again, filming would be a six-week hellscape in the woods, which kicked off, fittingly, on October 31st, 1983. It was also the horniest one of the four, leading crew to try and hide a lot of it from the 12-year-old that was on set. At the end of the film, though, Jason ends up dead. 
While they did break from form in many places, the film was still pretty formulaic as a whole, but the draw of the final Friday the 13th sent the audiences to the theater in droves. Again, critics hated it, but it is now considered the best of the franchise. And that's gonna do it for this week. Wait, it's not? You mean they made a shit ton of Friday the 13th movies even after declaring they made the last one? Of course they did. A fifth film, Friday the 13th, A New Beginning, was announced shortly after the release of Part 4 and released less than a year after that final chapter. Paramount was gonna suck this teat dry. On this film, Frank Mancuso Jr. decided to take a step back, though he was still involved with the film franchise, just in less capacity. If he wasn't, I highly doubt this many Friday the 13th films would exist. Part 5 is different in that it doesn't feature Jason, merely a copycat, because Jason was dead after all. A new beginning instead focused on Tommy, the kid from the fourth film, now teenaged, recast, and real messed up from what happened to him. He keeps seeing Jason kill in his hallucinations. The deaths were more creative and over the top than in previous films, all leading to a climax with the imposter Jason. The technically Jason-less Friday the 13th film received pushback from audiences. Despite that, with 22 kills, it was the goriest film of the franchise to that point. While its opening weekend was strong at the box office, the longevity of the film's money-making potential was severely dinged when the word of mouth got around that there was no Jason in this film. Instead of cutting their losses and not making these films anymore, the producers decided to get to work on bringing Jason back. For reals this time. Mancuso Jr., now serving as an executive producer, believed that the franchise was one hit film away from redeeming the whole series. It was time for a resurrection. To make the film, which would be called Friday the 13th, Jason Lives, so there was no confusion about who the killer was going to be, Mancuso hired Tom McLaughlin, whom had directed the successful horror film One Dark Night, but was also known around Hollywood for several comedy scripts he had written. McLaughlin was given free reign on how he would present the story, with the only condition being that he would bring back Jason and make him the film's villain. McLaughlin decided to take the film in the Frankenstein route and brought Jason back via a lightning storm. McLaughlin also drew from vampire lore in order to give Jason a weakness, namely him having to return to his home soil. To achieve this, McLaughlin retconned the part two plot point that Jason had survived his drowning, changing it to the fact that Jason has always been some kind of supernatural force. He also decided to change the ending of the fifth film where Tommy Jarvis was a serial killer. They changed it to that all just being a dream. Now technically like a zombie or a revenant or whatever, Jason is swapped back into a feral brutish killer now complete with superhuman powers. When it came time to screen the first director's cut of the film, Mancuso Jr. was disappointed by the reduced body count. In fact, they made McLaughlin do reshoots to add three more murders to the film. McLaughlin and the producers, whom claimed they had wanted a change, but apparently not that much of a change, fought until the bitter end about how the film should end. Eventually, Jason ends up at the bottom of Camp Crystal Lake, where the final scene shows he's still alive. The film kept box office momentum alive to yield yet another one of these movies. By 1987, everyone was so tired of slasher films. 
So tired. Science fiction and supernatural films were now overwhelmingly more popular. Jason may have been down, but he was far from out, especially with Frank Mancuso Jr. around. The dude had apparently never heard about the definition of insanity and still believed that exactly the right creative move in the franchise would turn it all around. The road he chose next, however, came as a surprise to pretty much everyone. Friday the 13th was going to be a TV show. It has nothing to do with Jason Voorhees, so we're just going to skip right by that because this is a Jason episode. Just know that exists and ran for three seasons. There's also a video game. There's a there's a tabletop game. There's a lot of Jason stuff that's not movies. The film series took a whole year off, if you can believe, and Friday the 13th, The New Blood came out in May 1988. This film features a young girl whom, via repressed telekinetic powers, awakens Jason from the bottom of the lake. The filmmakers originally wanted this to be a crossover with Nightmare on Elm Street, but this idea was cut off at the knees. New Line Cinemas, the studio putting out the Elm Street films, didn't need Jason. In fact, Freddy was slaughtering him at the box office at regular intervals. When The New Blood released, the fatigue was evident. The film earned far less money than its predecessors, and I don't need to tell you what the critic thought. Undeterred, here comes number eight. Who says they're running out of ideas? This one's called Friday the 13th, Jason Takes Manhattan. I mean, this one's like the other ones, but in New York for the climax, so different. And it's practically a whole new movie. Y'all, I watched... Way too much of these movies this week. I I am so fatigued by Jason. I didn't realize I wasn't the biggest fan of Jason films until I forced myself to sit down and watch them all. Like if it's your thing, I'm I'm good for you. It's your thing. Just my God, it's uh part eight was the first of the films not to shoot in the United States. Filmmakers opted to shoot in Canada instead because it was cheaper. In order to compete with Freddy and accommodate changing audience tastes, the filmmakers knew they had to make everything a bit more fantastical. Moving the carnage to New York just wouldn't be enough. Part of director Rob Heaton's solution was to give his final girl a series of flashbacks and hallucinations that would allow the film to not only further explore the mythology of Jason Voorhees, but deliver the audience the kinds of unexpected shocks and creative scares they had never seen before in a Jason film. They ramped up the lure to 11, causing the film to go over budget and over schedule, forcing several subplots to hit the cutting room floor. They did, however, get to take Jason to Times Square. Jason would take Manhattan in the summer of 1989. Fangoria magazine declared the box office battle between Jason Takes Manhattan and the fifth installment of Nightmare on Elm Street, The Dream Child, as, quote, the box office battle of the summer. Friday the 13th was opening a mere two weeks before Dream Child, and box office analysts were making bets on who would come out the victor. But both films' grosses were a far fall from their former glory. All in all, Jason only took in $14 million, its lowest showing to date. But let's try again, shall we? This time, Daddy's Home. For the first time since the first Friday the 13th film, Sean S. Cunningham returned to the franchise. With the job of producer now completely vacated by Frank Mancuso Jr., Cunningham saw an opportunity to revamp the franchise and attempt to make the entire affair a more meaningful one for him. It would be a decision that would not only set into motion the rebirth of Jason and the Friday franchise, God help me, it would also bring about a relationship between Cunningham's baby and a new studio, one that already had a famous killer on their roster. Yeah. New Line Cinemas. Four years after Jason Takes Manhattan failed to revamp the franchise, Cunningham planned to send the monster to hell once and for all. 
The notable difference between this film and some of the others is that is that Jason isn't really in this film that much. He's mostly seen as a specter before returning in his full glory for the finale. While all of the shoots were rough in some manner or another, on this film, things got nasty. When one of the actresses sprained her neck two days before the end of filming, things got so bad between her agent and the producers that Cunningham, who was serving as a producer but not directing, had to come in and finish the final days for his underexperienced director. Post was chaotic as well, and test audiences didn't like the lack of Jason in their Jason movie. The strange things Cunningham had written into the script were wreaking havoc on the runtime as well. The studio made the filmmakers do extensive reshoots, and this was all before they were going to have to go battle with the MPAA over the rating, which had been an issue on nearly all the Friday the 13th films up until this point. The film finally released in the summer of 1993, and while things were better this time around, the movie barely made more than its predecessor. People were just tired of slasher films, it seemed, even with a bunch of hocus-pocus tacked on. New Line Cinema, however, appeared happy with the results. Jason Goes to Hell was never intended to reignite the franchise, but rather to serve as a launching pad for Freddy vs. Jason, which we'll get into next week. At the end of Jason Goes to Hell, a very famous set of knives drags Jason's mask down to hell. All in all, the film turned a healthy profit, assisted no doubt by the first ever unrated release of a Friday the 13th film on VHS and Laserdisc. In the timeline of Jason, the next film that would take place chronologically is Freddy vs. Jason, which was a saga and a half to get made, and we're discussing it next week because there are far fewer nightmare films than Friday movies, and we've still got two more for this episode, so let's just buckle down, let's do this. In the summer of 2001, Jason X was released. The film came to be after Cunningham got impatient waiting for the studio to figure out how the hell they were going to do Freddy vs. Jason. It was stuck in something known as development hell. In order to allow Jason back onto the screens while not messing up with the Freddy vs. Jason plans, Jason was going to have to undergo some radical changes. He was going to space. Jason X takes place in the year 2455, and Jason has been cryogenically frozen for hundreds of years, but after being found by a group of students whom defrost him, he subsequently stalks and kills them one by one. In space! While other films of the franchise approach Jason as a human serial killer or undead monster, this film views him through a science fiction lens, referring to his inability to die as a regenerative power that can be studied and perhaps replicated, and then has him transformed by future technology into a cyborg, or as the fans like to refer to him, Jason X. Jason X was the most expensive of all the films to make, and the film bombed pretty much all the ways a movie can bomb. The film was a mess to make from the jump, and it showed on the screen. To quote my favorite line from this movie, this sucks on so many levels. New Line decided in the mid to late noughties that they might like to consider revamping the original Friday the 13th franchise like they had been doing with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre series for several years to relative success. The company spent the better part of a year acquiring the rights needed to make a new film with a new mythos set in the modern day. This film would not be a sequel, but rather a revamp. I mean... The film is basically a speed run of the first four films, and other than being new and flashy and more polished looking, it falls in line with pretty much everything else. It's stabby stabby, run around stabby stabby some more. It, that's, that's Friday the 13th. That's just what they are. It's just what Friday the 13th is. 
Well, the film was immediately more successful than the last three Friday the 13th movies. The film's drop-off in profits were swifter than it had ever been. So far, this final machete blow to the chest seems to have put Jason into a long, long sleep. Jason has been hacked, slashed, blown up, frozen, dipped in toxic waste, sent to hell and back again for nearly 30 years before being put into retirement for the last 12. Will we ever see the machete-wielding murderer again on the big screen? I'm not a betting individual, but I'd wager a guess that the time may be coming soon for another trip to Camp Crystal Lake. And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media where I also post photos for each episode. At Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, at Tinsel underscore Factory on Twitter, on Facebook at the Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at TinselFactoryPod at gmail.com. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there, so if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find me, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you can help out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. I've also got merch. Check that out at the link in the show notes. Next week, we're covering the origins and history of the killer that will haunt your dreams in every way imaginable, Freddy Krueger. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, that's a wrap. (laughs) 